speed, agility, power. I'm a big fan of these things. All of the performance I demand for myself on the ice is here. Handles all of my needs in dynamic fashion. episode of Roxy Fever. I am your host, Jackson McDonald, coming at you solo this week, briefly, with a couple of announcements. Elliot and I had a lot of fun recording an episode earlier in the week with friend of the show, Justin Morissette, about the bizarre media coverage surrounding the Canucks team that went to the 2011 Cup Final. But first, I just wanted to uh, give our listeners a brief update on what is going on with us, what you can expect moving forward, and mainly just explain uh, why the schedule is uh, about to get very fucked. So, as you may have guessed from the tardiness of this week's episode, we have come to the end of our run of weekly episodes, where all three of us live in British Columbia. Things are starting to open back up, and committing to the recording on the same day every week uh, is just no longer as feasible as it was when everyone was stuck inside all winter, and you couldn't go anywhere, and you weren't supposed to see anybody. So I will try to keep things as brief as possible. In all likelihood... You guys are not going to be hearing much less from us than you have become accustomed to. But you are going to be hearing a lot less from the three of us together. Elliot, Vias, and I finally had the first general assembly of uh, Roxy Fever to discuss basically how to work around the fact that we are three very busy people with very busy schedules who love doing the show and love each other very much, but also just have a bunch of other shit to do. Ultimately, this is still a hobby. So Elliot, Vias, and I have committed to basically doing two episodes together a month and another Heritage Minute for the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash roxyfever. Uh, $5 a month gets you access to one heritage minute per month. Once again, that is patreon.com slash roxyfever. Anyways, basically what you need to know is you'll be getting two episodes a month from the three of us and a bunch of supplemental other stuff. That could mean me doing a one-on-one show with one of the beloved cast of characters you've all uh, become accustomed to, whether it's Georgia or Mal or Cody or Justin, as we talked to this week. It could mean Vias and or Elliot doing something on their own. They have a few fun ideas planned for the offseason. It could also mean rotating some of us in and out to tackle big news stories should they pop up. I also should add that our episode on the 2011 Vancouver riot uh, has been delayed slightly. It will be coming out at the beginning of July, but uh, I don't know why I thought a literal criminal investigation would take less time to research than a bunch of stupid concussion emails, but uh, here I am being surprised by that. So um, we haven't forgotten. We are going to do it. It's just going to be another week or so while I get together all of the relevant information. On a final note, we are also going to be less invested in the Vancouver Canucks uh, for the next season. The reality is that the thing that's keeping us tethered to this team is largely the fan community and the hilarious content that uh, they seem to always be willing to provide us. But ultimately, by this point, 80 episodes in, if you haven't figured out that this isn't really a show for hockey analysis, then I don't really know what to tell you. Uh, At this point, we've basically accepted that 
people actually enjoy our bullshit, and so we're going to be doing a lot more of it. That means a lot more episodes where we watch terrible movies, or talk about a moment from hockey history, or talk about a general issue in the world of hockey, and a lot less episodes about whether or not the Canucks should trade for X player. And obviously, it's not like we ever did a ton of that anyways, but I'm planting my flag in the ground right now. That is something that we are going to do as little as possible of moving forward because we've realized that that's just not really what our audience gives a shit about. So anyways, I feel like I have made this intro far too long, so I'll wrap it up. Hopefully you guys enjoy episode 80, Lose Change. Joining us now for our long-awaited and much-anticipated part two to our 2011 Stanley Cup Conspiracies episode is longtime friend of the show, Justin Morissette. Justin, how's it going? Oh, it's, you know, pretty good. Pretty good. Happy to be here uh, on on your bad media episode. As uh, yeah, Don't don't uh, read into that too much. <laughs> and some consider the worst person in Vancouver sports <laughs> media. I'm happy to be here and, and share my expertise. It feel it felt important to me to get somebody on though who does have a a connection and an understanding to like how these things work because I feel like it's very easy to as a fan, it's very, very e- easy to throw pot shots at the media all the time, mm-hmm. especially if you don't even really understand what their job is or what they're even doing. Especially if you are the manager of an optometry clinic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it's very different to throw pot shots at the media when you have, to some extent, bumped shoulders with these guys, made friends with them, and done some form of the job. And so, yeah, it, uh, I'm looking forward to having you you here and to, to give your insight into some of these bad takes. But first, uh, before we get to any of that, I think it will be a nice starting point. I have to ask you about uh, the Tim Thomas ads fiasco because I ma- I made careful pains in the episode that we did to kind of stick to the stuff that was out there in a public record in like a, a newspaper or magazine. But you have some additional information about this that I was not able to get to that I think puts the whole thing in an even more insane light. So could you explain that for our listeners a little bit? Yeah, I think I'm the reason why this Tim Thomas pad scandal has come to light at all. And it's because I I tweeted something derisively uh, about Gregory Campbell because I think I saw like a Boston sports uh, fan or media person talking about like how important he was to that 2011 team. Oh, the most important, you might say. (laughs) I did say, yes, he was incredibly important because his dad prevented any of his teammates from getting suspended for dirty plays. Uh, Yeah, Uh, And a friend of mine, uh, or someone who I know, a contact, who Mm -hmm. uh, is an expert in the the field of goaltending, reached out to say that there's actually more to it beyond just the fact uh, that, of course, Colin Campbell um, might have had his hands all over some punishments that did or did not come down uh, over the course of that Bruins run to say that it was an even further inside job than you had reported uh, a couple <laughs> weeks ago. Because what you didn't say, you did talk about the fact uh, that Campbell recused himself from supervising the Stanley Cup final. Uh, but that doesn't really mean anything when his best friend and coworker just did it for him instead. Like, there's yeah. not really a ton of uh, distance there. And but, it's also like, what about the first three rounds? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah exactly. Like, if it's not a problem for three rounds, how is it a problem for the final? So, are you familiar though with the name Kay Whitmore? Of course. Backup goalie for 94. Yeah, a backup goalie for the Vancouver Canucks in 93, 94, and 95. And he is currently, and has been for more than a decade now, been serving as the goaltending supervisor for the National Hockey League. If I may interject here, I will uh, note that when I went through the NHL concussion emails, Whitmore's name comes up a lot in um, minutes for uh, meetings of the NHL competition committee which was just like a committee that existed for a while and then got kiboshed for whatever reason about like essentially having player perspectives on how to improve the game and make rule changes that would like essentially 
meet the NHL's goal of making the game like more entertaining for U.S. markets or more marketable or whatever, mm-hmm. while still like maintaining what the players want out of the game. Right. Yes. And uh, Kay Whitmore and Ryan Miller were easily like the two guys who were the most vocal about like goalies rights, I guess you might say. And um, yeah, I just I just wanted to add a little bit of context in there that like this is the goalie guy when it comes to the NHL. uh, And uh, he's still around. He was around for the 2011 final. And then he was also around earlier than that uh, when the NHL was like changing rules during the lockout. Like he has been around the block for a long time. Well, let me correct you there, Jackson, because he actually was not around. Sorry. Yes, you're right. (laughs) NHL. It took Kay Whitmore off the job for the final because he was considered to be biased having once played for the Canucks, despite the fact that he also once played for the Bruins. So <laughs> you think he would be completely impartial here. The, the difference is, though, between like removing a Colin Campbell and removing a Kay Whitmore is when you take Campbell out of the position of a uh, grand disciplinary poobah or whatever the fuck his title was. <laughs> yeah, it's something it's, like that a second in command who can go and fill in and take over. I don't know that the NHL has a secondary goaltending supervisor to step in and do the job. If you're to remove Whitmore from the task at hand. And I think Tim Thomas knew this because they took Whitmore off the job, replaced him with nobody. And Thomas took full advantage. He altered his pads with a strapping system that would close his five hole automatically for him whenever he went down this is completely illegal and his gear was never checked not once in the entirety of the final he went seven games without being inspected by anyone and he knew this because he knew there was you know no cops on the beat as it were (laughs) if you're in a back road and you know there's no one around are you going to obey the speed limit fuck no you're not and not if you're smart i want to i also want to like add too that in the spirit of competition, like all the cheating that the Bruins did, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. Like they did exactly what I would have done in their situation. Exactly. You want to win the fucking cup. That's not, the, but that's not the point. The point is that like you, you look around at all of this stuff and the NHL and hockey on a grander scale, but particularly in the NHL, like we are talking about something that is supposed to be a competition and way too many elements of frankly all of the hockey that happens in the Stanley Cup playoffs but particularly of this 2011 final uh, are just way too subjective and left up to individual actors to just quote unquote do the right thing there's way too much left up to the honor system mm-hmm. um, and you touched on the the Piku lawsuit when you guys talked about this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I can't exactly remember the gentleman's first name, but Piku Chris, is Chris Piku. Chris Piku, he's this strange character who tried to start his own uh, kind of goalie pad company after he left Vaughn. Um, and he was sued by Vaughn for, you know, they felt he was taking credit for his work, uh, for their work, I should say. But what I'm pretty sure happened is that he was taking credit for his own work. I don't know if you guys have seen uh, the film I, Tonya. Yep, absolutely. Okay, so Paul Walter Hauser gives a fucking outstanding performance in this movie as just uh, 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 an absolute nobody who's convinced himself and everyone around him that he is a a dominant power player in, like, the underground criminality world. Yes. And here's the thing. He actually accomplishes what he set out to do. He is the mastermind behind this attack on Nancy Kerrigan. And it actually, uh, he accomplishes his goal and he would have gotten away with it, but he can't stop telling everyone that he did it. And Chris Piku is the exact same sort of guy. Like he, uh, you know, gave Thomas these illegal pads that have the best playoff run that any goalie has ever had in history. He did it. He accomplished his goal. He, he had like, uh, you know, his star talent, won the cup, won the Vesna, uh, might've even won the Conn Smythe, I think that year. Yeah, like he he did, yeah. had this, you know, launching point to, uh, you know, build his company off of, except all of it was illegal. <laughs> they were illegal pads. They were never inspected. <laughs> and he 
just went around and blabbed and told everybody that that this is you know what it is. So you guys read, uh, I believe, on the previous episode, uh, uh, a summary of the the lawsuit. Essentially, I'll I'll read it right now. The, the defendant's right. plan, and this is Piku, first came to light in September 2011, ten months after they had parted ways with Vaughn. Piku was quoted in an online hockey goalie enthusiast magazine article. Yeah, in Goal Mag, which I also read from. Yeah. The article showed an NHL goalie who had recently won the Stanley Cup, the Vesna Trophy, and the Conn Smythe Trophy in a single play <laughs> season wearing unbranded goalie leg pads that Piku claimed that he had made for the goalie's use in the upcoming play season. The pads resembled pads manufactured by Vaughn. Piku claimed in the article that the pads were the same pads the goalie had worn during his preceding award-winning season. Those pads had been manufactured by Vaughn and bore the Vaughn name. Now, what Vaughn is alleging is that you are taking credit for our glorious pads. What I think actually happened here uh, is that, okay, we know it's in Goal Mag, so give me just one second here to try and lay out the timeline. Okay, so Tim Thomas is spotted wearing new gear in the summer of 2011. This is noticed by people in the goalie world. Kevin Woodley writes an article about it and reaches out to Chris Piku, quoting him, uh, you know, saying that he's the one making them, uh, but it shouldn't be an adjustment for Thomas because he was already wearing them during the cup run. That is a direct quote from Piku. But hold on. The pads he wore were branded as Vaughn. And pressed about this, uh, he says he bought Vaughn skins and basically made a pad from scratch for Thomas to wear. Uh, now, Piku was technically working for Vaughn at the time. So people will point out, well, that's impossible. You can't buy Vaughn skins. But if you work for them and are at their warehouse, <laughs> you can <just laughs> then you definitely them can. And do whatever you want. <laughs> I mean, also, you have to think about it. It's an NHL goalie. Like, you could buy Vaughn skins and like pads and disassemble them. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. If you know what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Which clearly all of these people did know what they were. They knew what they were doing with the exception of like how to successfully keep a conspiracy under wraps by not blabbing to it about everyone you meet. But yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's a scene in I, Tanya where, yeah, Paul Walter Hauser is sitting at a bar and it's just like a quick cut succession of him telling everyone he's telling the guy next to him at the bar he's telling the guy next to him at the urinal he's telling everybody piku was exactly like this he couldn't stop giving away uh the secret that whole nancy kerrigan thing that was my crew we're paid 65 grand to take her out and my team obtains press credentials by beating up a reporter we need to cut a we need to cut a video of me doing that with the uh john weisbrad florida story (laughs) (laughs) anyways um but yeah i don't have much more to add beyond that but i I feel like you guys missed some important details it's just really that's great believable as to how this would happen and uh i i feel like a, a bunch of people uh, sort of called me uh, an insane conspiracy theorist uh, when I brought this to light. And look, maybe there's two sides to why I was told this information in the first place, right? Sure, of course. Yeah. At that time, I was in the hospital with my broken leg. I was, you know, coming off of uh, a big uh, incident where I'd publicly told someone to fuck off and clearly had no problem <laughs> speaking my mind. In addition, I was on an enormous amount of opiates. So my <laughs> my give a chill factor was low as can be i was going to uh you know basically say whatever i wanted at that point and had no fear of retribution from anyone or anything uh and there's two sides to that you know someone can look at that and say well this guy's clearly willing to say things that i can't so i will tell him something and he can take it public if he so chooses there's another side to that where i look like a insane drugged up maniac who's mildly (laughs) from a hospital bed so you can view it from however you want, I guess, but uh, I know what I believe. I'll put it that way. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I really appreciate you coming on to clarify that because I, I just really did not want to speak for you and I didn't want to get the details wrong. And so I just stuck to the the two pieces that were in the public record. And, um, you know, as 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 I always like to do, encourage people to do their own research, folks. Um, but uh the uh, the other thing that I wanted to I think this dovetails nicely, basically, into talking about the media coverage around this run and this final, because Tim Thomas 
and Roberto Luongo, that goaltending battle and the way it was, particularly the tone of the coverage around it looks absolutely insane. Not, it doesn't even take 10 years for that to look insane in retrospect. It takes six months. Because Thomas, it was insane the day it happened. Oh, it was absolutely. But Thomas, you know, we all knew it was a crank essentially, but he really cements that not even four months later when he refuses to go to the White House with the Bruins to, you know, have their cup day uh, at the Capitol entirely because he's just a racist who hated Barack Obama. No reasons to hate Barack Obama. Don't get me wrong. Thomas does not have them. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And obviously, like Roberto Luongo had not become Strombone yet, but it it, it has been really funny to see. um, And we'll we'll talk about it more when I go through some of the uh, some of the articles that I was able to find. But it's been really funny to see the way that like Roberto Luongo uh, has become, you know, a beloved figure online. And then, you know, now a somebody who stepped almost just directly into a high level management role helps build the uh, Canadian world championship team that wins the gold medal, gets a lot of good press for that. We have Alex Burroughs as an assistant coach in the, uh, in the, Sam, the what would, do you call it? Would be the conference final, but yeah, it's the I'm calling yeah. it the Stanley Cup semifinals because yeah, thank you. It. Yeah, totally. It's also great that Burroughs has been on the three Canadian teams that made it to the third round. Yeah, that is really funny. And so all of this is just to illustrate now, you know, with the Sedians there possibly coming in to um to a management role with, or some kind of advisor role with the Canucks that's been reported for a long time. They had the big, uh, you know, love in from the national media when they retired. Ke- you've got Kevin Bieksa on the panel. You've got Cass's house. Cass's house. Yeah. It's just interesting to see all of these people become respected figures. I, think, I don't think it's a stretch to call them beloved figures, honestly. In- in yeah. some places and by some people, certainly it's very, very interesting to see that because you look at how they were written about 10 years ago and it was like they were the pariah dogs of the NHL. And I will note in all of this that if you look at all of the big figures from that team, all of them were able to move on and gain the respect of the establishment NHL. Some of them, it took longer than others. That may be Raffi Torres. Yeah, except for maybe Raffi Torres. But if you look at all of these these big figures, like there's all the ones I just mentioned. Elaine Vigneault has a a coaching job. Uh, Lawrence Gilman. I think Elaine was always respected at that time. He was always respected, though. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Gilman Gilman has the management job in Toronto. But who's the one guy who just has not ever appeared since then? Mike. Mike Gillis. Interesting. Yeah. I, I don't know what to make of I, that, but it is. Interesting I do want to add me. a little addendum there, Jackson, because you were talking about the fact that Luongo had maybe not uh, become Strombone at that point. It's 2011. Twitter is a thing, but it's not nearly the thing that it is now or even would be like two years later at that point. Uh, but he had still demonstrated a huge capacity to be a very fun character within the sport. He'd done those Absolutely. videos yep. for TSN with James Duffy, both the the uh, Bufflin poetry reading one, as well as the, uh, the one where he uh, ran over Jamie McLennan with the Zamboni. Uh, (laughs) A very similar one with uh, Corey Schneider. I feel like as well, it was like a sequel to the, to the noodles one. He had a capacity to do these really fun, really comedically driven personality features with TSN that I don't think any player has really done since honestly, like, no, not really. He got burned by the media in Vancouver, though, as well, when he was captain, I feel like. Uh, Absolutely. like yeah. willingness to show that kind of personality or be honest in, in general at all uh, kind of uh, diminished hugely because every time he'd be asked as captain, how did the play unravel in this circumstance? If he's to say, well, this defenseman blew their coverage and so-and-so, the media doesn't turn that around and say, well, actually Luongo's completely correct in the way he assessed that play. They say, look at this goalie throwing his defenseman under the bus. This isn't what a captain should do. Even though captains assessing where things went wrong is what we ask them to do all the time. 
Yeah, and especially too because like it's not like Luongo was ever struggled with self criticism. Oh yeah, absolutely. No. Like if if he blew it, he would be like, yeah, that was me. I blew it. Yeah. I, I I don't know. I relate to this a lot as a incredibly critical person. If you're somebody who cares very deeply about improving at what you do, about being the best at what you do, and you are surrounded by other people who also ostensibly care about that. Yeah. It is normal and healthy, I think, to take the viewpoint that like, look, we're all going to be critical of each other. We're not going to lie. We're going to be like, yeah, Willie Mitchell blew that play. And whatever, it's fine. Like the important thing is that we know that and now we improve from yeah. it. And yeah. the important thing is that is that when I blow it, that means you get to do the same thing to me. That's how we get better. But even, but even like you're watching the last dance right now, Jackson. Yes. So welcome yeah, exactly. to 2020, yeah. first of all. And second, yes. of all, <laughs> second of all, that is an a attribute of Michael Jordan that is routinely celebrated. How demanding he is, not just of himself, but everyone around him. And you put up with that because, well, look what he's willing to do. Look what he's putting himself through. If he's doing that, and that's the best guy in the world right now, and he's working that hard, I would be an idiot not to work that hard. And he has every right to rip on me if I don't. That is yeah, an attribute that is completely celebrated when it's a team of like, you know, five to 10 guys on a, on a basketball team. When you expand that to 23 and it's one guy doing it on a hockey team, suddenly it's an ego thing and they shouldn't act that way. It's very bizarre. Yeah. But this also ties into some of the coverage around 2011 where there was the whole, the most famous goalie media incident was the tire pumping saga, which started with Luongo's assessment of what Burroughs overtime winner in game two, where Tim Thomas oh, that was so funny. is literally halfway like between his net and the boards. And Roberto was obviously like, yeah, I would have saved that because I wouldn't have skated way the fuck out there. But <laughs> Like Thomas is going to make saves that I wouldn't. So, you know, whatever. He, didn't fi- he hadn't figured out a way to strap his pads to close against the post. Uh, yeah. <laughs> basically. But wall. yeah, yeah, <laughs> that was funny because they asked him about it and he said, basically like he didn't, I would have made that save, but there's saves that he makes that I wouldn't. So yeah, whatever. Yeah. And that's the, th- that's the thing where it's like, you know what he means? Why yeah. do you have to be, it's, it's two different styles of, of two different styles play of play will result like, in two different outcomes. Like, yeah, it's it's you could make a, a very similar case with like like there's all kinds of goalies you could say that about Ryan Miller, Marc Andre Fleury. Like there are guys who people who play a more athletic style or who stand up a bit more, they will make saves that the more technical goalies won't. But sometimes the more technical goal, like sometimes the more technical goalies won't get burned on very stupid looking goals, like where you're 30 feet out of your net or like Marc-Andre Fleury the other night, just giving the fuck away. By that, that whole sequence for yeah. Fleury is utterly oh, bizarre. It's the most lackadaisical, like non-committal play I've seen in an in, in Eastern Conference final. Or I guess they're, they're they would be in the Western Conference final, but there is no conferences yeah. in that level of, of playoff intensity. He has no uh, intensity whatsoever going out to play it, realizing he can't losing it in his feet, but not even actively trying to find it again. Anyways, this is completely unrelated to what we're talking yeah. about. Shout out to shout out to Vias. If you're listening, you'll know what I mean when I say that. Say this. Uh, we call that momentary executive dysfunction. <laughs> <laughs> so I think this this transitions nicely into um, some of the some of the things that were that were said uh, about this team when when the final went down. And I I I want to stress that I really just did not have a chance to go through uh, all of the stuff I wanted to to the extent that I would have liked, to the extent uh, that we've seen in previous episodes and we'll see in future episodes. But I do just want to give a, a quick like rundown of um, some of the headlines that were that were jumping around the uh, the Smeelosphere <laughs> at this time. Um, Damian Cox loving these Canucks sure isn't easy. The New York Times, some fans in Canada see Vancouver as foreign. <laughs> I, I have to unfortunately need a subscription to read this article because it's 10 years old, but I cannot even imagine what kind of brain worms are at work in that one globe and mail by uh, Matt. I mean, this is Matt Sakaris, So he's just, he's just reporting, but Canucks have become NHL's most hated team. 
Uh, National Post, Canucks is Canada's team. No thanks by Joe O'Connor. Uh, Why Canadian fans love to hate the Vancouver Canucks by David Staples in the Edmonton Journal. Like, I'm not going to read all of these because you get the idea. But these were all this is in the span of like two or three months that all of these things, all of these articles were written. Can you remember a time before or since where as much column space was devoted to how much Canada hated one particular Canadian team? No. And I I think I have a hypothesis as to why that might be that goes beyond just the fact that this was, you know, a a jerk puck team, I think was the term that we coined. That's a, that, that is a really important element to see uh, in terms of there, there's like, there's that element. Is it justifiable reason there? But on the other hand, like compared to like the Oilers in 06 who had freaking like, Chris Pronger on their team, right? Or- I think Rafi Torres is on that team too. Isn't he? Yeah. Uh, which is such a huge problem, apparently, for cheering for the 2011 Canucks, but was no problem. And then, like, that. it was all like Edmonton Calgary. Those were both, there was like national media coverage of them as Canada's team. Well, that's part of my hypothesis here, Elliot. First of all, though, yes, you have to look at the fact that this is a, a, a jerk team in general, but I don't think that's really entirely the core essence of the group. Like, there's a ton of likable, really admirable players on this team. Obviously they're led by the Sedins. Luongo yeah. is a very affable guy. I think you're an idiot. If you look at Alex Burroughs and think that he's a menace to society and not one of the most inspiring stories that we've seen in hockey in the last two decades, honestly, for a guy who was undrafted, uh, a roller hockey player to go from, uh, you know, the roller hockey world championships to riding shotgun on the most potent offensive line in the entire league. That is a, a huge inspirational story. That is the stuff of a of a Disney sports movie, essentially. But, you know, if you want to see him as a jerk because he bit someone's finger after they shoved it in his mouth. Sure. Whatever. You're free to do that. Um, Beyond just that, though. I think that's part of it. What Elliot was getting at the fact that we had seen so many Canadian teams go to the final in a very short span. You know, you have the flames in 2004. We, we lose the 05 season to a lockout the very next mm-hmm. year. It's another Canadian team, the Edmonton Oilers in 06, the very next year, it's another Canadian team, the Ottawa senators in 2007. So oh, you're yeah. being faced with these you know, cascading narratives of having to cheer for the Canadian team in the final three finals in a row. Uh, And, you know, obviously there's a three-year gap after that before the Canucks get back in 2011. But I do understand perhaps a bit of a pushback to the concept of Canada's team when it's the fourth time in the last seven years that you're being asked to cheer for a team that you might not necessarily like. Having said that, I don't, I don't care if, you know, Joe Schmo or the average hockey fan in Canada doesn't want to cheer for the Canucks. That's not a problem to me. I don't think anyone in Montreal right now is losing sleep. If you or I are not cheering for the Habs right now, even though I personally am. Um, Yeah. You know, I don't think anybody's worried about that. It's the fact that the media was not just not on board with Canada's team, but actively despised this team. The knives were fully out in a way that we just don't see ever. You know, you'd like, can you imagine the, the, the things that we've seen already in this Habs run, whether it's Niagara Falls lighting up red, white, and blue, or the CN Tower lighting up red, white, and blue, you know, can you imagine uh, Canadian landmarks or, or, you know, the governments in other provinces doing anything like that for the Canucks in 2011? It wouldn't be done. You would never see that because there was an active hate on for this team that went beyond the fans. It went to not just media commentary within sports media, but I think sort of average opinion pieces from people who generally aren't sports commentators, but might wade in in the case of, you know, a very newsworthy final or what have you. There was just a full on uh, character assassination of this team right across the board from the entire media outside of Vancouver. And that's not a persecution complex on the on the uh, part of Canucks fans or or British Columbia or uh, Western alienation or whatever you want to call it. That is a certified fact. We just don't see this with other teams. Yeah, it's true. I I agree with that completely. And I want to I want to uh, return briefly to the topic of Alex Burroughs first, just to say that. If you can understand that Brad Marchand is a guy who plays between the whistles and is a largely 
an asshole, but very talented, does it effectively. And I would argue like, I hate Brad Marchand. Would I call Brad Marchand one of the dirtiest players in the league? No, not really, because he's not like out there trying to murder people. He's not Tom Wilson. He did. He did slew foot Sammy Sallow that one time. That was, he did. Yeah. yeah. And he and he sandbagged uh, Daniel Sedin as well. He's not a clean player, uh, but I'm just saying if you can get behind Brad Marchand as a guy who uh, love to hate him, love him if he's on your team kind of guy, you should be able to do it for. Oh, Alex yeah. Burrows. People talk about sure. Alex Burroughs outside of Vancouver like he's fucking Darius Kasparitis. It's absolutely. Yeah, exactly. I don't think Burroughs ever had an intent to injure play like ever at any point in his career. So Eller is more of an intent to injure player than Burroughs. Yes, Alex Edler, that's the dirtiest player in the game right there. Thank you. Yes. Um, And then the, the other thing that I just wanted to briefly, briefly touch on, because I feel like it would be criminal to not not bring it up in an episode uh, where we're kind of getting to the stuff we didn't get to in the last 2011 conspiracy episode, which is the Stefan Auger incident Yes, has mm. to be considered as another, I, I actually think a really defining moment in terms of determining the coverage around the Vancouver Canucks. Well, that's because... really when it became us versus them. Yeah, Absolutely. And so obviously, like, I, I, I'm going to assume a certain baseline level of knowledge from our listeners. But just a, as a like a quick recap for anyone who's not aware, uh, because we do have some listeners who shockingly are young enough that they don't really remember this. Um, I, I can't remember the details of, like, what game it was. Uh, on, it was against on the National Predators. The hit was National against Predators. J.P. Thank Dumont. You. Yes. Okay. So the the basic thrust of the of the entire thing is that uh, Alex Burrows is told by Stefan Auger after Auger like makes a questionable call that Burrows makes him look bad, basically, and that Auger is going to get him next time. Yes. Basically, that this was a- this was a year prior. This was a, a year prior. This happened on January twelfth, twenty ten. Thank you. Yes, and. Uh, as it so happens, later on, there's a phantom call against Burroughs and the Canucks go on to lose the game uh, as a result of a, a goal scored on that power play that on the phantom call against Alex Burroughs and Burroughs being the kind of person that he is. He gets interviewed about it after the game and he just says, yeah, this is what the ref told me. Uh, I, I, <laughs> you're, you're making it out that he thought it was a funny thing that he presented as a joke or whatever. He, no, he no, was incredibly he was emotional. He was like on Absolutely, the verge yeah. of tears. Uh, oh yeah. He was insane because it cost him the game. And why would you not be, uh, you know, just furious that you were assessed a spiteful penalty that you did nothing to deserve. But that's what I mean. I could see, I could see other people on the, on the team being like, we're going to go through the proper channels and we're going to yada, yada, yada. But I feel like specifically because it was Alex Burroughs and him being the type of person on the ice that, you know, he, is. it wasn't just one penalty either. Uh, yeah, that's here, true. Burroughs yeah. said OJ called three penalties against him in the third period, two minors and a misconduct to get yeah. back at him for an incident in a December 8th game in Nashville. Burroughs said OJ felt he had been tricked into calling a charging major in game misconduct against predators uh, against the predators. Jared Smithson, the NHL later overturned the Smithson call ruling that Burroughs took a dive on the play with the same teams and the same referee on the ice. Burroughs told reporters that OJ said before the game that he would get me back for making him look bad while Burroughs was serving his second minor penalty of the third period Shea Weber scored the winning goal for Nashville it was personal said Burroughs the ref came over to me and said I made him look bad in Nashville on the Smithson hit he said he was going to get me back tonight and he certainly did his job in the third yep absolutely yep. and so this creates I think a really really important element to consider in all of this which is the the incident like basically next week on Hockey Night in Canada, Mike Gillis and the Vancouver Canucks decide to, as like a show of solidarity with their player, to refuse to do any media for CBC. Against Hockey Night in Canada, specifically because yeah. Ron McLean, being uh, the cop lover that he is, yes, uh, that's right, sided with the referee, even though Stefan Auger 
was like released from the NHL like almost immediately after this. They realized yeah. this guy sucks at refing. Well, he put together basically a six minute uh, political hit, basically. Yeah, against absolutely. Alex Burrows. Hit job. And, yeah. and the Canucks very rightly said, if that's how you want to treat our players, then we don't want to deal with you at all. But do you remember who was sitting next to him while he did that segment? No. Colin Campbell. Oh, wow. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I went back and watched it. And uh, that part has been has been memory hold. Um, it's a it's surprisingly difficult to find on YouTube because I think people sort of don't quite remember. I think in terms of Canucks fans, we were also incensed when we when it happened that it can be kind of hard to remember the small details. But like he invited Colin Campbell onto like the CBC panel. And it was a, a thing with just the two of them. While he just why Burroughs is awful. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. Shocking stuff. Like uh, just a, a, a lot of stuff that feels like it would just, it's too obvious and it wouldn't happen now. Mm-hmm. But um, anyways, mm-hmm. that's a, that's a bit of a, uh, that's a bit of a detour, but I did just want to make sure that we gave some time to that as well, because that's another element that after a certain point, I think, if I if I want anyone to come away with one particular takeaway from all of this, it's it's look at all these different elements and then look how, at how subjective the refereeing and player safety process is. And when you look at all of these different actors with all of these different incentives, it just becomes so clear that way, way, way too much is left up to the discretion of individual actors whether it's the referees on the ice or the one guy who makes the suspension ruling after the fact every individual actor is empowered way too much in that moment to just be like yeah i i don't like this guy so uh i'm i think he was probably diving so we're not going to call this penalty yeah you know what i mean it's also amazing that like nhl refs are so concerned with when the players make them look bad but NHL officiating in general is never concerned with when their own lack of action makes them look horrible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's that's another thing, too, that it is funny to me because it's like, obviously, the Canucks tried to sell penalties. Mm-hmm. Every team tries to sell penalties. This is a thing I don't understand. Like, yeah, I also don't really get like the pushback against, um, you know, uh, Kessler and Burroughs in that era doing like the head whip to sell high sticks in the face and whatnot, uh, as if that's like a tragedy. As well, if, everyone like, does that now too. That's first the thing. of all, everyone did yeah. it at the time, also. Yeah. And, but also, doesn't that just indicate that you're constantly getting sticked in the face and it's not being called? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, what are we talking about? That's exactly my point, basically, is just that it's so funny to see how upset uh, the the league and the game itself and the referees get about trying to draw penalties in what they see as an as a dishonorable way, but committing infractions in a dishonorable way and trying to not get penalized for them. That's perfectly fine. Yes. Right. Like, God yes. forbid you whip your head back when you get high sticked in the face. But, you know, you want to, like, give a guy seven or eight punches in a row in between the whistles when he is not doing anything. That's fine. You know, it's just one of those things where ultimately, at the end of the day, you can't watch this stuff and not ask yourself, like, what exactly are the priorities here and are they the right ones? Yeah. I mean, if you're Ryan Kessler, uh, you're if you don't you know, whip your head back, then you're just getting sticked in the face. And because you didn't sell it, the refs didn't notice and you didn't get a call. And if you do whip your head back, then uh, you're called a diver. So you can't win, really. You're called a diver, but then you get the power play and you probably score the goal and you win. It's just people reacting to incentives, right? Yeah, so exactly. If you have a problem with it, change the incentives. So that uh, brings me, I think that that dovetails quite nicely into the thing that I really wanted to spend uh, most of the remainder of the episode on, which is, I think, a, a sort of an underrated element in terms of the coverage uh, and the attitude around this Canucks team when it happened, uh, when the final happened, that is, which is the sort of bizarre histrionics of the national media and figures within the game 
around uh the Canucks being the poster boys for the sissification of the NHL, basically. Because if you look back at the tone of a lot of this coverage, it's very like, look at these coastal elites with their, you know, calculators and their pocket protectors. That was the sort and of- And their country club dressing room. I remember that. Their country club dressing room. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, they're based around the- you know, I mean, I love the Sidians, and I say this with love in my heart, and I mean it as a positive thing, but maybe two of the least masculine hockey players in NHL history. I and think it, what you mean there is ma- two of the least toxically masculine. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because, because ultimately, like, anyone who has been around in the NHL will tell you how tough the Sedins were and how much punishment they took in the corners. Like, the, they, were, they played in terms of toughness. They almost played tougher than anyone else because they didn't. They take all the shit and then do what they need to do to score goals and win games, as opposed to everyone else who would turn around and do goonery to like get back at the guy. Exactly. That's what I feel like yeah. we properly appreciate how hard those guys worked in the offseason every single year. Oh God, to yeah. Be in the kind of shape they needed to be in to play that kind of game along the wall. They would like never lose wall battles ever. Uh, which when you're, you know, the size that they are, not that they're small guys by any stretch, but, you know, head to head with a Zidane Chara, you're probably uh, not going to come out on the winning side of that. Most guys at that size anyways, you know, um, I think they really learned the lesson of Marcus Nasland, who no disrespect to Nazi, I think was a guy who thought that, you know, this was easy, that he had natural skills, that things came simple to him and he didn't necessarily have to do the work because his shot was what it was. And he had that and it was always going to be there. Well, when his shot fell off, his work ethic, look, maybe this is speculation on my part. I don't mean to impugn the character of him, but he struck me. The entire character of that West Coast Express team struck me as people who were naturally gifted and didn't feel like they needed to put in the work necessarily. Yeah, I would Uh, agree with that. And that bears out when Naslin goes to New York and his game falls off a cliff and he retires at like age 32 or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. No, it's true. I, I, I think that's more I think that's accurate. And I think it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, it, impugning their character to say that. Like, yeah. it's it's just it's one of those things where I think a lot of people in the NHL just don't know how to when you're that talented. Eventually, you get old. And if you never had to put in the work, then you're not going to suddenly learn past the age of 30. Right. Mm-hmm. That's just, I think that happens to all kinds of players. And if you want to look at the other opposite extreme of that, look at like Yager and how he, I mean, the guy has nothing going on in his life outside of hockey, but he just works like a maniac all the time. And that's why he can still play hockey at a professional level at like, how old is he now? 50. I mean, he only plays part-time because he also owns the team. Yeah. <laughs> he plays home games for his Czech team. That rocks. <laughs> and he owns the coolest shit imaginable. Yeah, that is literally the the dream. I he's think for forty nine years old. Forty nine. Okay. Yeah. yeah, he's almost at it. He will play into his fifties, though. I guarantee. Absolutely. Like, um, so yeah, I'm gonna just do a quick. We have to talk about the because I think ultimately at the end of the day, okay, we can understand how you would write things, very very vitriolic things about. Uh, Alex Burroughs or Ryan Kessler or even Kevin BX and maybe even if you do enough mental gymnastics Roberto Luongo given the the weird psychology of the moment and the fact that he hadn't become strombone yet or whatever mm. but the stuff that was written about the about Daniel and Henrik Sedin is legitimately insane and bizarre and was from the very second it was put to paper so i wanted to once again just highlight a couple of things not going to go through the the finer details here but um there's an article here about uh don cherry picking on picking on the Sidians. i why does everyone hate vancouver stop whining start paying the price quit blaming the goaltenders and you'll start winning again so uh I, I thought this was totally bizarre and I do not understand what the context for it was. This may have just been Don Cherry sundowning, but um, th- th- there's a, there's one we've got Mike Milbury calling the Sedians Thelma and Louise. Not going to bother going through that article, but that was a 
really horrendous moment for the national media in the U.S. And I mean, Mike, I mean, giving Mike Milbury a national media job is a dark moment in the National Hockey League in the U.S., you know, and and it gave us this this moment too. gave us one of the only like uh, like one of the earliest sassy Sadian moments where they asked, uh, you know, Henrik or Daniel can't remember which about it. And uh, he responded with, uh, oh, well, you know, he did a great job in Long Island and I'm sure he's really proud of that. So, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I just that rules. Yeah, it really does. The kind of thing that they they rarely ever uh, said, but it was great when they did. Um, and then. Um, oh yeah, there was the uh, there was the huge uh, Dave Boland uh, Sedian sisters controversy, which got frankly like to me even really giving that airtime is questionable. Obviously, you you put it out when a player says it because it's a because it's a soundbite, but. Didn't like Tyler Sagan say something awful about them as well? That was that was much later. That was much yeah. much much later than the uh, than the 2011 final. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Tyler Tyler because that was when he was in Dallas, right? Tyler, yeah, Tyler Sagan and Jamie Ben um, had the whole like uh, sleep in the same room or whatever, and then uh, and then one of them is like, yeah, no, who knows what else they do together? As if that as if there isn't like an entire uh, subculture on the internet that's in, committed to that surrounding uh, you know Travis Konechny and Patrick. <laughs> No one As if there isn't like a bunch of people on Tumblr who are posting about that exactly with Sagan and Ben. Yeah. As yeah, if the NHL good. isn't like the gayest sport already, just like for real. And I don't mean this in, in a pejorative sense. I just mean like it's just so much of the aesthetic around it is incredibly gay. Like Yeah, and then there was the uh the Sean Thornton um if uh, you guys are sisters, does that mean your wives have dicks uh, comment from the uh, from the Florida Panthers peanut butter game? Like really some truly horrendous shit that was allowed to be uh, directed towards towards the player. These players I forgot about that one. I wish this was a video podcast. So everyone else could see the face I just made. Yeah, Justin, <laughs> Justin looked horrified. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I wish I could screenshot. The peanut butter that. comment itself was pretty funny. Oh, uh, the whole thing was so good. But I wanted to, um, if I, if you'll allow me to, just quickly um, find one article that I think just really sums up the whole thing. And it's an article from uh, January twenty second, twenty sixteen. So this is um, quite a lot after the final, but it it is about this phenomenon, and um, I think it really just. Uh, sums up my feelings about uh, the city of Boston and Boston as a sports, you know, Boston sports fandom, basically, and uh, why I will never forgive anyone for viewing this uh, team, these fans as uh, the good guys in this series. Anyways, it's an article by Jason Botchford. It's called Beantown Hate for the Sedin Twins Alive and Well. The 2011 rivalry is alive and well in Boston. Thank you very much. And you'll never believe the players who the fans here still hate nearly five years later. No, it's not Alex Burroughs. I'm sure many in the National Canadian Media Corps are shocked by that. Now, it's not all the fans either. Ah, sorry. I'm going to try that again. This it, There's a weird typo here. Um, weird typos in Jason's <laughs> self-published articles? <laughs> no. <laughs> I love uh, reading the Pravis and Athletes like within 10 minutes of him posting them. The, the can cucks. It was uh it was always a wildly different experience than reading it the morning after, I'll say that. Absolutely. And I say that with love. Oh, of course. And nothing of else. Yeah. No, that is a man who understands what people want or understood what people want out wanted out of him, which was get the fucking thing out. Yeah. Speed and efficiency. Yeah. Fix yeah. it later. We'll we'll understand what you mean. And that's true. Exactly. Now, it's certainly not all the fans either, but plenty of the ones I talked to at Thursday's game still have it in for the Sedin Twins. I hate them. Hate them. Josh Hall said twice to ensure there was no doubt. Okay, so that's Josh Hall in Boston. I don't know if anyone wants to do any research there. <laughs> uh, don't actually satire. Don't don't go looking for people named Josh Hall in Boston. Okay. Uh, well, then it seems like 
famous Boston fan, Bill Simmons, who made it clear he sports hates the twins, isn't alone. Do you guys remember that? Sports hate? This yeah. Is a whole, this is another like uh, memory hold thing from uh, Pravi's lore, but Botch and Bill Simmons getting into it over uh, sports hate and what a weird uh, concept that was. Well, of course, uh, Bill Simmons' favorite player on the 2011 Bruins was uh, famously Patrick Beverly. <laughs> which is what he thought Rich Peverly's name was. <laughs> uh, that rocks. <laughs> Why? They don't play the game the way it's supposed to be played, friend Andrew Patrick said. This quote, I know it's just some random Boston fan, but this quote blew my mind. That like, this is how people, this is only five years ago. Mm-hmm. I, and this is why I can't, like I I can't get behind the the love in with the Sidians from the from the national media and the culture now because it's just like you guys didn't appreciate these guys while they were around you hated them yeah yeah like you literally called them slurs basically yeah. Still, the 2011 Stanley Cup Finals is one we can't escape. It was emotional, bitterly so for some. It was confrontational. It was dirty. It was controversial. And it featured two teams who played the game two entirely different ways. It may not have been the best hockey ever played, but it sure pumped out the best storylines of any championship in recent memory. In Vancouver, it hasn't been forgotten. The same is true in Boston. They definitely flop a lot, Hall said. It's like we have Marchand and we love Marshy. Marshy. They love the Sidians. In Boston, not so much. Asked if he got the feeling a lot of fans in Boston hate the Sidians, Patrick said, oh yeah, solely from 2011. I don't think I ever saw the Sidians take a dive, like ever. No. It's just bizarre. Like, If you, anyone in Boston hates the Sidians, it's because you were scared of how good they were. Yeah. Which yeah. it should have been in 2011. My God, Henrik Sedin on that entire run, especially against the Sharks, just unbelievable. Yeah, um, I have all the time in the world for like, Burroughs and Kessler as floppers. Fine. Like, yeah. fine. Yeah, I get it. They're, they're, they, were, they were the poster boys of the jerk puck style. But the Sidians were not divers, and they were not unsportsmanlike players. Like, just don't – just if you – as soon as you start stepping out of bounds too much, it makes me just have no time for anything you're saying. But that's you know the I mean? weird thing, too, is that, like, uh, a lot of teams, almost every single team that wins the Cup has as many asshole players on their roster as the 2011 Canucks did. Absolutely, yeah. And we don't judge the entire team by the character of those players, except the 2011 Canucks, apparently. Well, and I mean, I, I will make it clear, and I have made it clear multiple times, like, I don't, I fucking hate Ryan Kessler. I don't like Ryan Kessler at all. And I, I bit my tongue about it while he was here because he's like, a top five player in Canucks history. He's, yeah, he's one he's of my fucking... favorite Canucks of all time. <laughs> yeah, he was, he's excellent. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I have a, an authentic, like with a $450 fucking uh, <laughs> Ryan Kessler jersey that I picked up in like 20, 2009, I want to say. And I will say, because we were just talking about the kind of uh, lackadaisical, um, naturally skilled sort of nature of the West Coast Express era. Mm-hmm. Yes. The reason why I liked him so much was after watching that over. 506 team that missed the playoffs. Um, Kessler was a guy who you could see working his ass off on every shift. Yeah. And that was completely different from the overall character of the team that he was coming on to, which made him a favorite for me right from the get go, like well before he showed any signs of being a, a 20 or even 30 or 40 goal scorer. Oh, so. yeah. By by like. 2007 my favorite players on the team were Kessler and Burroughs for exactly exactly. that reason yeah so I think that uh that pretty much covers all of the points that I wanted to get to but before we close out are there any final thoughts uh from either of you yes um not to step in Elliot because I feel like I've been (laughs) this is why we have you on eating your lunch all day long uh yeah i mean when you talk about sort of the um i hate to use this term but basically the the idea that what we were just drawing at was that like the the sedines or maybe vancouver or or skill teams in general represent a quote-unquote sissification of the sport um 
You know, I think when I've watched a lot of skill teams uh, come close or even win the cup in recent memory, and certainly the Tampa Bay Lightning last year were about as skilled as it gets, uh, it makes me lament the fact that, look, we know that the NHL is a copycat league, right? We know that whoever wins the cup that year becomes the model that all teams aspire to build to. Even Mike Gillis tried to emulate, you know, the the 2007 uh, Anaheim Ducks. He wanted... he. He literally went out and got Sammy Paulson to be his third line center at one. Point. <laughs> yep. Um, you know, the, the, it's a very much a copycat league. You're trying to emulate what's worked in the past. And I think every time a skill team comes close to becoming champion, you're going to see that pushback because let's look at predominantly who are the people, the former players who make up management positions. They're all dumbass meatheads. Every <laughs> single one of them. Mike Milbury is not a smart guy. Jim Benning is not a smart guy. You can go down the list, the list of guys. They're they're all meat and potatoes players who like meat and potatoes hockey because that's what they played and it's what they know. And they feel threatened that if a different style of hockey is going to come in and win and be emulated, it will make them dinosaurs, which they technically basically already are, but it would push them to extinction. The entire league would shift towards being forward thinking in a way that all of these people resent. That's exactly what the pushback towards the computer boys was all about right so uh you know i look back and i think about 2011 and 2012 and that kind of run of uh championships where you've got the boston bruins and the la kings playing this very regressive heavy uh meathead hockey and it sucks because yes we are currently enjoying a golden age of high tempo fast-paced skill-driven action, whether it's the Carolina Hurricanes or the Tampa Bay Lightning, or, you know, you can point to any number of teams. That is what is kind of starting to dominate the league right now. It's taken longer than I think a lot of us would have liked, but it is arriving now. Mm -hmm. And when I look at the league, you know, and do these 10 year retrospectives, I think this style could have arrived and been the dominant style of play in the league a lot earlier than it did if you don't have the Bruins winning in 2011, if you don't have the LA Kings winning in 2012 and 2014, you know, if, if the, if you looked back on that era of hockey and thought that, Oh, the greatest teams that played during that time are the Chicago Blackhawks and the Vancouver Canucks, then you would try to build teams like those teams. Um, And that's not what we got until, you know, maybe 10 years later. And, and, uh, I don't know. And we're going to go right back as soon as we get that Montreal Long Island final. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> because even Tampa, people look at Tampa Bay winning the cup last year and they don't talk about the fact that basically every single skill player on that team is five foot nine. They talk about, oh, analytics can't tell you how great Blake Coleman is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which, which, by the way, yes, analytics can tell you how good well, Blake Coleman is. Yes, obviously. That's the other thing, the other thing that pisses me off about, about like all of this is that. So, you know, you look at the Bruins and we talked about this a little bit on um, I will I will plug it because on controlled entries, Reese and Garrett and I did do like basically an entire episode on the Boston model. And um, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Not to cut you off. Even Boston doesn't play that style anymore. No, exactly. The most recent Boston team that went to the final and lost against St. Louis, you know, they played Canucks style of hockey and lost to a Bruins style team. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. It, that, that was part of the reason why I like, why it was so cathartic to watch them lose in that final to the, to the blues. It was just like, ah, now you motherfuckers know how I feel. But um, <laughs> it was uh, um, anyways, what I was, what I was getting at there is that uh, there's, there, it's weird the way historical revisionism happens because if the Boston model is, be the best team in the league at five on five and have the best like five on five shot share. That's a good model to follow. We know that's a good model to follow. And guess what team followed that exact same model and won the cup the next year, the LA Kings. Right. And so it kind of goes back to my whole thing around, like, I don't really care if you like analytics, but analytics better like you. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I find so so frustrating about the narratives around that is that like Boston LA at the end of the day, as much as they were these meat wagon teams, they were effective meat wagon teams. And yes. And the, what got fucked up about 
other teams trying to emulate them afterwards is that they tried to emulate the meat wagon, but not the effectiveness. <laughs> yeah. They're trying to emulate style, not like process that dictates outcomes. But exactly. also like my final point here is that like when these old school hockey guys are even assessing the success of teams that fly in the face of their philosophy, like Tampa last year, they reach so deep to be able to find the most minute detail that had no effect really. Oh, yeah. If the Canucks won the cup, we would be hearing about how like Rafi Torres and Maxim Lapierre and Victor Oreskovich drove the like, yeah, absolutely. We're the fucking heart of the team. Victor Oreskovich would be the GM right now if the Canucks won the cup. Look at the fact that, like, every year lately, it's like, oh, well, the secret to that team's success was Patrick Maroon. There's yeah. no other element that went into it. Or, like, look at the contract that Jay Beagle got. Like, yeah. th- th- these things are completely unrelated to victory, you know? How did Jay Beagle know what it takes to win in the playoffs? Well, he passed the puck to Alex Ovechkin. That's what he did. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, like, there's, there's pieces at the high end that are the ones that are winning these championships, and the commentary and management guys who need meat and potatoes to continue to be the thing so that they can continue to have job security and a future in the game will be like, ah, yeah, Kucherov, Stamkos, all those guys. That's nothing. It's all about Blake Coleman and Patrick Maroon. Like, give me a break. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's a, a pretty good note to end, uh, uh, end on. I'm just really excited for that Habs Islanders final. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Oh, yeah. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Big thanks to Justin Morissette for joining us yet again. You can follow him on Twitter at Justin Morris, one R, one S. You can follow me on Twitter at McDonald, and you can follow Eddie Elliott at Moose Kayak. Uh, don't forget to follow the pod at Roxy Fever and subscribe to the Patreon. We just finished up a great episode on what I would consider to be maybe the greatest Canucks fan story of all time. I'll just leave it at that. So um, thanks for listening. And in the meantime, you can send your hate mail to Tim Thomas's home address in Colorado Springs.